fundamentally, if we don't face the fact that everything we do is about a desire to escape discomfort, we will always become distracted by something. If we don't understand the root cause of distraction, why we get distracted in the first place, what internal triggers we are trying to satiate, and then it's a lost cause. We have to start there. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Here we are at episode 120. So I'm recording this intro as we speak in a hotel room in London. I've not been away from my house since the lockdown started, so that's about four months ago. And I have to say it feels really, really strange. I certainly think that being on the road again is going to take a little bit of getting used to. It was really interesting that when I'm in a hotel room away from my family, I start to engage in behaviours that I don't tend to do as much when I'm at home. I look at my phone a lot more in the evening. I find myself flicking from website to website, from Instagram to Twitter to Facebook, and then back again. And there's nothing inherently wrong with doing these things, but I do think it's helpful to understand why. What I'm really doing is distracting myself, distracting myself from the feeling of boredom or stress or loneliness. And distraction is the topic of today's conversation. My guest is Nir Eyal, best-selling author, former Stanford lecturer and behavioral design expert. Now, Nir started his career by helping tech companies develop products that are intentionally habit-forming. And now, he's written a fabulous new book called Indistractable, where he explains, amongst other things, how to get the best out of technology and reclaim your attention without letting it get the best of you. Now, this is a conversation that took place way back in October 2019, when Nir was in London doing promotion for his book. I interviewed him live on stage at the Tabernacle Theatre in Notting Hill, London. Because this was a conversation that took place in front of a live audience, I think it has a slightly different feel to my usual conversations. But nonetheless, I think it's a conversation that you will really enjoy and get a lot of value out of. So as a society... I think we're living through an epidemic of distraction. We all know that feeling where our plans get sidetracked, friends are ignored, work never seems to get done. You sit down at your desk to work on an important project, but a notification on your phone pops up and interrupts your morning. When we're at home, we're often trying to spend quality time with our family and our loved ones, but screens often get in the way. Day after day goes by. And often, our most important personal and professional goals are put on hold because of distraction. So what would be possible if you actually followed through on your best intentions? What could you accomplish if you could stay focused? What if you had the power to become indistractable? Well, Nir believes that we all have the power to become indistractable. And today's conversation he reveals how. He explains what really drives human behavior and why time management is actually pain management. Nir shares actionable techniques that will help you design your time, realize your ambitions, and live the life you really want. The essence of this conversation is about how do we go about living an intentional life. I really hope you enjoy it. Now, Before we get started, just a quick shout out to some of the sponsors who are essential 
in order for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. Vivo Barefoot, the minimalist footwear company, are sponsoring today's show. And I'm a huge fan of their shoes and have been wearing them exclusively for years, well before they started supporting my show. And to say they transform my life is no exaggeration. I've been recommending them for years to friends and family, but also to patients and continue to hear wonderful feedback on the impacts they've had. Many people find it helps them with pain and niggles, but also with general mobility. One of the other benefits you find when wearing minimalist shoes like Viva Barefoot's is that you become more mindful. Walking, for example, takes on a very different experience. You start to feel more connected to the ground beneath your feet. And actually, many people think this will make things more uncomfortable. But the opposite is true. Viva Barefoot shoes are really, really comfortable and enjoyable to wear. I myself wear Viva Barefoot shoes anytime that I'm not barefoot. So for walking, working, running, or simply playing with my kids. Now, if you've never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. It's completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can send them back for a full refund. For listeners of my show, they offer a fantastic discount. So if you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, USA, and Australia. You can get your 20% off code by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Zendium Toothpaste are also sponsoring this week's show. Now, we're becoming increasingly aware of the bacteria inside our guts when it comes to our immune health. But have you ever thought about the bacteria inside your mouth? The oral microbiome is your mouth's most powerful defense system. It's a delicate ecosystem that needs the right balance of bacteria to stay healthy. An unbalanced microbiome can contribute to dental problems. And modern life, whether it's poor diets, too much stress, lack of sleep, can upset its balance. Zendium is the very first toothpaste brand that I've come across that aims to support the health of the oral microbiome. It uses natural enzymes and proteins that aim to increase the numbers of good bacteria, which protect your mouth naturally and reduce bad bacteria to protect it against dental problems. The very best way to try out Zendium is to go onto Amazon and order. That is the online store Amazon where you can go and order Zendium toothpaste today. Now... On to today's conversation. Uh, good evening. I'm John Gordon from the How To Academy and delighted to see you this evening. Uh, we're hugely honored to be able to have with us today Nir Eyal. Um, I'm going to leave Dr. Rangan Chatterjee to introduce him. Um, so it's just for me to introduce uh, uh, Dr. Chatterjee. Um, he's a best selling author. Um, his podcast, um, is one of the most, if not the most, downloaded um, uh, podcasts on health. Um, he's one of the most influential doctors in the UK, and I'm sure many of you will have seen him in Doctor in the House. Uh, he's a pioneer of integrative medicine and getting to the root causes of why we're sick. Um, it's a great pleasure uh, to be able to welcome him here. He's going to be in conversation interviewing Nir Eyal, and thank you very much. And without further ado, please extend a very warm welcome to both our speakers this evening. Thank you. Good evening. How are you doing? You're okay? 
Good. So it was a very kind introduction from John. Um, I'm sure many of you are already familiar uh, with Nir, but for those of you who are not, Nir is um, a behavior designer, a former Stanford lecturer. He's the author of the international bestseller, Hooked, and also the author of the quite brilliant new book, which I cannot stop reading at the moment, Indistractable, Nir. Welcome to London and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, Nir, I, as I said, I can't stop reading this book at the moment. And I think, you're, I think you're talking about a topic that many of us know is a problem. But until we give a name to it, as you have done, I'm not sure we actually look for solutions. So I wonder if you could start off by saying, you know, why is being indistractable so important? Right. So maybe I should start with describing what it means to be indistractable. Becoming indistractable means you are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. You value personal integrity. You know, we, we all know how terrible it is to lie to someone else. We would never want to be accused of being a liar right? to our children, to our family, to our friends. And yet the fact of the matter is we lie to ourselves all the time. We say we're going to do one thing and we do something else. We say we're going to exercise, we don't. We say we're going to do that big project at work, we procrastinate. We say we're going to be fully present with our loved ones, and we're not. And so this was a very personal challenge uh, that I took on because I had this problem. I was patient zero where I found that I was getting distracted from the things that I wanted to do with my time, my attention, and my life. And so that's really what, what started me down this journey. Yeah. I mean, I have... I've spoken about stress a lot in the past, and there are many sources of stress in the modern world. But I think the fact that we're constantly distracted is a huge source of stress. And the way I've looked at it before is I talk about micro-stress doses and macro-stress doses. Um, micro-stress doses are little hits of stress that in isolation we can handle, but when you mount them up on top of one another, they start to get you closer and closer to your own stress threshold. An example I give is that many of us wake up in the morning these days, and before we've left the house, we've been exposed to 10 or 15 of these micro-stress doses. So someone's gone to bed late because they were up binge-watching Netflix, and they wake up at, well, they know they have to go to work, so at 6.30, their alarm goes off and pings them out of a deep sleep. So I call that micro-stress dose number one. They realize then that actually you know what, I've got a bit more time. So let me put this on snooze for another six minutes. Six minutes later, another alarm, micro-stress dose number two. Then you realize, actually, you know, I should be getting up now. So you quickly look at your phone because that's where your alarm is, right? And you have a look and you see, oh, there's three work emails I didn't do yesterday. Oh, you know, that adds to your stress in the morning. Then you think, actually, let me have a quick look on social media and someone's been mean to you on your last post. And... A few nodding heads here. So um, the point I try and make is that actually many of us have left the house having been exposed to multiple of these micro hits of stress. And I'm, I think I talk about it in terms of stress, but you could just as easily make the case that all those micro stress doses are distraction. Well, so it, maybe it's useful. It's a good point to maybe um, kind of share this framework that's the backbone of indistractable and, and define what do I mean by distraction. Um, so the best way to understand what distraction is is to understand what it is not. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. 
that in fact, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do with your time, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is, this is important for a few reasons. Uh, one, I think it frees us from this ridiculous moral hierarchy that uh, a lot of people have that, you know, what, what you do with your time, that's, that's frivolous, right? Uh, checking uh, Facebook or Candy Crush or whatever, that's frivolous. But me spending three hours watching football, that's somehow okay. <laughs> In my book, anything you do with intent no matter what it is that you do, even checking social media, even doing those things that, that you, you choose to do, as long as you are doing them with intent, because you want to, as opposed to somebody else is influencing you to do those things, there's nothing wrong with it. It's still an act of traction. The other thing that I think is really important about this is that we oftentimes trick ourselves into thinking that something is traction, even when it's distraction. So, uh, you know, this would happen to me all the time. I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to do that big project. I'm going to do that thing I've been finally, uh, you know, think procrastinating on. I'm finally going to do that thing right after I check email, <laughs> right after I check uh, my Slack channels or do some research on Google. And I would still not do the thing that I had planned to do. And so that is just as much of a pernicious distraction. So we've got traction, we've got distraction. Now, it's important to understand what influences us, what prods us to either traction or distraction is one of two things. We have our external triggers, many of them you've mentioned. These are the pings and dings and rings, these things in our environment that prompt us to either traction or distraction. And those are kind of the usual suspects. Everybody knows those things. And we love to blame those, those uh, external triggers, our devices, our computers, all of these potential uh, triggers towards traction or distraction. But it turns out that a much more common source of distraction, uh, what I learned in my five years of research writing this book, is that while some distraction starts outside of us, turns out most distraction starts from within. And so it's not just the external triggers we need to think about, it's what we call the internal triggers. Internal triggers are these uncomfortable sensations that we seek to escape. So, you know, one thing that we need to understand about distraction is that it is not a new problem. And in fact, Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, this tendency that we all have to do things against our better interest. And it's, it's a fascinating question if we think about it. Why do we do things we know we shouldn't do? And why don't we do the things we know we want to do? Why do we do things against our better interest? But I think in order to answer Plato's question, we have to dig a layer deeper to understand why do we do anything and everything? What's the driver of all human behavior? What's the nature of motivation? Most people will tell you that motivation is about some version of carrots and sticks. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. And so Freud says that everything is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That's kind of most people's conception of what drives human motivation. But it turns out that from a neurological perspective, it's not exactly right. Turns out that human motivation is not spurred by the desire to pursue pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Neurologically speaking, turns out that all behavior is spurred by one thing, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. Everything we do is about a desire to escape discomfort, even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations. Even the pursuit of pleasure is itself psychologically destabilizing. We call this the homeostatic response. So we know this is true physiologically, that when we feel cold, for example, we go outside, we feel cold. 
we put on a jacket, right? We put on a coat because that's not comfortable to feel cold. And if we walk back inside, now we're too hot, we take it off. And if we're hungry, our, you know, our belly starts to rumble, we feel hunger pangs, we eat. And when we're stuffed, that doesn't feel good, we stop eating. So that's physiologically how this homeostatic response works. The same is true psychologically, that when we feel an uncomfortable emotional state, we also turn to some kind of emotional pacification device to help us cope with that discomfort. So when we are feeling lonely, where do we go? We go to Facebook. When we're feeling uncertain about something, we Google it. When we're bored, we uh, check sports, uh, news, uh, Reddit, Pinterest, all of these products and services cater to these uncomfortable emotional sensations. So this means that fundamentally, if all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. That doesn't matter what kind of life hacks or the latest guru's techniques around how to manage your time and your life. Fundamentally, if we don't face the fact that everything we do is about a desire to escape discomfort, we will always become distracted by something. And I think what you're noticing is a very interesting phenomenon because uh, the, these micro doses of stress, in fact, are spurred by stress in the first place or some type of uncomfortable sensation, right? So when we get up in the morning, we have that desire to check our devices. There's always a preceding emotion that we are trying to pacify, like babies sucking on thumbs, right? We, we don't want to feel something. So the closest thing we can grab to alleviate discomfort, we form a habit around, and that becomes what we turn to for psychological relief. And sometimes it spurs us into this vicious cycle where the more we check, the more stress we get, and the more stress we get, the more discomfort we feel, and the more desire we have to keep checking or distract ourselves in one way or another. So I think your insight is, is right on. The good news is, and this is a very, I think, optimistic book because I think uh, every other book on this, on this topic, and I didn't originally plan to write this book. I, I wanted a solution for myself. And so I read every book I could find on uh, distraction and tech uh, overuse. And every book basically said that it's all about technology, that the technology is at fault. Stop using your technologies. Technology is doing this to you. It's rotting your brain. It's hijacking your brain. It's addicting everyone. And so I took their advice. I, uh, I got rid of my uh, iPhone and I bought a flip phone that only sent and received phone calls and text messages, no apps. I got a word processor from the 1990s. They don't even make these anymore. No internet connection. All you could do is type on it. And I thought, okay, great. I got rid of all the, the modern technology that apparently is so bad for us. And I thought, okay, now I'm finally gonna do what I said I'm gonna do. Now I'm not gonna be distracted anymore. And I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, now I'm gonna get to work right after I, you know, there's that book that I've been meaning to read on my bookshelf. And uh, my desk, I've been meaning to organize my desk. Let me just do that real quick. Or, or let me take out the trash. The trash, trash needs taking out right now. And I kept getting distracted even when it wasn't the technology that it was doing it to me. And so that's really when I came upon this insight that if we don't understand the root cause of distraction, why we get distracted in the first place, what internal triggers we are trying to, to, uh, to satiate, then that then it's a lost cause. We have to start there. Yeah, and, and Nero, I've got to say, I think that's one of the things to me that I I literally love about this book is, and I wasn't expecting this. Actually, I was expecting um, I was expecting a lot of tips and strategies on how you manage the distraction from technology. And of course, that is there as well. But I love this thing about internal triggers. And 
this whole idea that we are using distraction to escape discomfort. I think it's very profound and it reminds me a little bit of a speaker who I've interviewed on the podcast before who I've actually seen speak in this auditorium, Gabor Mate, uh, when he says all addiction comes from childhood trauma. And he defines childhood trauma as being either something bad has happened to you or not enough good things have happened to you. So essentially there's something missing. We don't feel completely whole. And so we look to certain behaviors, certain addictive behaviors uh, to sort of fill that hole in many ways. Um, and, and it, for me, it was really, it was really gratifying to see your view on this and, and how, yes, it's about putting in strategies into our daily lives that actually can help reduce distraction, but ultimately at its core, you're talking about, you know, sort of like human behavior. What is it that makes us human? Is, you know, as many people say, you know, being uh, alive is pain, pain, you know, life is suffering. And actually you're making the case very beautifully that everything we do in life on some level is to alleviate suffering. Right. I think, I think that's, that's exactly the point I'm making. And in fact, I, I don't like, you know, sometimes we hear folks that give us the impression that somehow if we're not happy all the time, if we're not satisfied, if, we're, if everything in life isn't great, then there's something wrong with us. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, we have evolved as a species to be perpetually perturbed. That's what makes us survive uh, so well. I mean, if there was ever a branch of homo sapiens that was happy all the time, that was satisfied, that never wanted for more. Those people were probably killed and eaten by our ancestors, okay? They're not with us anymore. And in fact, I think we need to, to, uh, to accept the fact that discomfort is okay, it's all right. Uh, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you necessarily. It doesn't mean that we're somehow broken or deficient. And, you know, I, I, I've talked to many people uh, in researching this book over the years, and most people tend to fall into these two categories of what I call blamers or shamers. The blamers, when they become distracted, when they go off track, they said, oh, you see, it's my iPhone that did it to me. It's, uh, it's Slack, it's Facebook, it's, that's, that's who did it to me. The shamers, this is the category I used to fall in, they say, oh, I'm deficient somehow. You see, I, I'm, I'm lazy. I, I, I have a short attention span. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm not good enough. And we shame ourselves. And of course, this also leads to this terrible uh, shame cycle, this, this, this vicious cycle of causing more discomfort and then of course, more need to escape that very discomfort. And so the way we, we uh, short circuit that process so that it doesn't continue is through, through many methods I talk about the book, it's about mastering these internal triggers. There are things that we can do to stop that chain, to stop that cycle, to get control over these internal triggers. You know, you can't control how you feel per se, but you can control how you respond to those feelings. And instead of these behavior, that these feelings leading to automatic uh, distraction, we can actually channel these uncomfortable sensations, you know, like stress, like anxiety, like uncertainty for good. We can channel that disquietude towards traction, towards acts that move us forward. So in terms of some of those actionable tools for people, if there is that deep level of discomfort that we're trying to hide from with, you know, spending too much time on Facebook, spending too much time on Netflix, constantly checking email, uh, 
eating sugar at every opportunity. You know, it's all actually, many of these behaviors are rooted in the same, same way. And I appreciate you saying that because it's, you know, the book has, I, I think people are, are, at least I was looking for solutions, particularly for this tech problem, but you're absolutely right. I mean, distraction comes in all shapes and forms, right? It can be the fact that you said you were going to the, go to the gym and you didn't, or you said you were going to eat healthy, as I used to say, and I didn't. And it, uh, spending time with your family or loved ones and your, your mind is somewhere else. Distraction takes many, many forms. It's not just about technology. For sure. And for me, me, what you're writing about in Indistractable is a universal issue. This, yes, affects your work, it affects your productivity, but it also affects your health. Mm -hmm. And probably most importantly of all, I think it's affecting our relationships. Mm -hmm. I think distraction in our relationships is, it's become very erosive, um, corrosive, I should say, it's causing so many problems in relationships that I don't think we're taking seriously enough. So on the subject of relationships, do you, do you feel, do you see distraction being an important issue to tackle? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we are, uh, the, the, the science is pretty conclusive that we know we need quality relationships in our life. Uh, one of the, the self-determination theory is, a, is a, a, a body of research I, quite, I quote quite a bit in, in the book. And this is you know, 40, 50-year-old research, Desi and Ryan. This is the most widely accepted theory of human motivation and, and psychological well-being. And basically, the, there's these three tenets of, uh, that, that every human being on the face of the earth needs, these three psychological nutrients. So just like our bodies need carbohydrates, fat, and protein, those are the three macronutrients for our body, our mind and our psychological well-being turns out is dependent on receiving sufficient doses of competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And so when we are deficient in these three things, a couple of interesting things happen. One, we don't flourish. Uh, this leads to all kinds of, of, of negative psychological outcomes. But we also, this is called the needs displacement hypothesis. When we don't get enough of these things offline, guess what we do? We look for them online. And of course, the tech companies are more than happy to give it to us, right? So when you don't feel sufficient amounts of connectedness, relatedness, uh, uh, competency, autonomy offline, you're going to go looking for it. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm not anti-social media. I, I think I'm not one of these um, Luddites that thinks we, 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 we have to stop using these things and that they're melting our brain. I, I don't agree with that. I think that we can get the best of these technologies without letting them get the best of us, principally by realizing that these things should supplement, not... Uh, replace real life interactions. You know, we know that this is a, a 40 year trend uh, where, where people are suffering from this epidemic of loneliness. Uh, Robert Putnam wrote about this in the 1990s with his book, Bowling Alone. Uh, this is way before the iPhone or Facebook, this trend uh, of, of increasing secularization uh, where there are less regular occasions to get together with members of your community, and the decline of civic organizations, uh, that there are fewer people who are joining the bowling league and joining Kiwanis Club and joining civic organizations. And so this has really led to this loneliness epidemic, that researchers tell us that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as smoking and obesity. And I, I think that uh, this is certainly something that we, we need to reverse. And the good news is, I think, that we can reverse this. And part of how we reverse this is that we begin to prioritize it. Uh, there, are, there are basically these four steps to becoming indistractable. The first is to master the internal triggers, and we touched on it a little bit. The second step 
is to make time for traction. So, you know, we talked about traction and distraction. So one of the most basic things that we can do, and this is backed with a, a lot of research, literally thousands of studies have shown the effectiveness of this technique. It's called making an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying you plan out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, right? So basically making a, a calendar, making a schedule. But researchers tell us that about two-thirds of people don't keep a calendar. We spend so much time and money protecting our stuff, right? We put our money in bank accounts and safes. We have home security systems. We have alarms on our cars. Uh, and yet when it comes to our time, sure, come on over, take as much of it as you want. And the fact of the matter is we cannot call something a distraction unless we know what it distracted us from. What is the traction? So the fact of the matter is we, we have to start keeping calendars. We have to make time for traction by turning our values into time. So a big principle in this book is that whatever your values are, and it's not up to me to tell you what your values should be. That's only for you to decide. But I talk about these three life domains of you, your relationships, and your work that we can use to fill our days. So if you know, many people start with the ends. They start with the big goals in mind. And I think that's a, that's a problematic technique because it's very difficult to know, well, okay, what's my five-year plan? How about what's your plan for next week, <laughs> right? How do you want to spend next week to live out your values, to turn your values into time? So if personal health and wellness is important to you, if that's one of your values, do you have time in your calendar for proper sleep? to exercise, to make healthy meals? Is that in your calendar? If relationships are important to you, back to this topic of loneliness, is it more than just, oh, we should grab coffee sometime? Well, that, you know that you've said that a million times and it doesn't happen, right? Because you haven't put that time on your calendar. So one of the techniques I talk about in the book that I think is, <clears throat> is uh, very apropos to this discussion around, around this uh, loneliness epidemic is this group that we call the kibbutz. Now the kibbutz, the, the word comes from the Hebrew, it means uh, gathering. And the idea is that, that every two weeks, we have these four couples that get together uh, and we just get together to, to talk, to be together. But the important thing is that it occurs every two weeks, same time, same place. Everybody brings their own food, right? So there's no big mess. There's no big planning process. But we know we are going to get together every two weeks. And if you can't make it, no big deal, come to the next one. But everybody has it on their calendars. And this time is critical. I mean, it is, it is really food for the soul. We get together and we go around and everybody that, of the eight adults has their turn and they talk about whatever's on their mind. Uh, so one week, somebody came up with a, 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 a parenting question. Uh, the next week, somebody was struggling with their, do with their job and wanted some, uh, to, some feedback. Uh, so we, we rotate around the group and people talk about whatever is pressing in their life. Now, children are in, invited to listen but they can't interrupt. Remember, I said earlier, distraction doesn't just come in the form of the pings and dings from your phone. Children can be a major source of distraction themselves. So the rule is that children can watch, they can listen, but they can't interrupt unless someone's bleeding. That's the rule. <laughs> because of, of two things. One, we, we don't want to kill the vibe, right? We have this beautiful interaction with our friends where we understand them and they understand us. That's so important for us to, to have those friendships. And most importantly, we also want to model what a, an adult friendship looks like for our children. Why is it that only kids have buddies and best friends? We want to show them that no, friendships are important for the rest of our lives. And we want to do that on a regular basis to, to show them how important this is, which also means, sorry, I can't talk to you right now because my friends are here and they're very important to me. And so unless you're bleeding, go away. <laughs> there's a juice box table, there's games to play, go over there or listen, but, you, but don't interrupt. So 
making time for traction, turning our values into time by putting that time on our calendar for the things that are really important to us is, is really essential. Yeah, I mean, there's so many points that I'd like to pick up on. Um, this idea that we allow distractions to basically take us off schedule and the things that really are important to us, you know, we all know that feeling. We, we just don't have time to do them anymore. We don't have time to see our friends. We don't have time um, you know, to spend time with our kids. We're too busy doing emails or checking our, our notifications at the weekend, whatever it is. Um, I think that whole idea of intention behind what it is we actually want from life, what is it we want out of our day is so key. But I think in many ways, by being constantly distracted and being in reactive mode. So from the minute we wake up, we're consuming information, what other people are sort of putting into our brains. We don't have the time to start thinking about what are our intentions. I, I see this with a lot of my patients that when they really start to get over their chronic health problems, and they really start to make lifestyle changes when some, there's an emotional switch that changes. They're not just doing it because I said reduce your alcohol or I said reduce your sugar intake because those things are serving a purpose for them. They are alleviating something. And, and that's why I think you're, you're really at the heart of something very, very important here. The story you mentioned uh, that, that you shared, it also reminded me of um, a Jewish family who I uh, went uh, around for su Sunday lunch at about six months ago. And they have always, they've got teenage kids, husband and wife. And it was really striking for me that they have, um, they observe the Sabbath religiously. You know, they're very strict. And from a young age, I was talking to their kids about this and what they do. And it was really incredible to me because I didn't grow up with, in this environment. And their kids love it. You know, they've never, they never go out. They're not, they don't go on social media. They can't even do sports classes or anything. That is family connection time. And I, I found that incredible. And I thought, did we actually have some of these systems in place before? Did society, whether it's, uh, you know, a variety of different religions, did we have these systems in place as we become more secular? Actually, these things that are so, so important have vanished from our daily lives. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I consider myself um, a, a secular person. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't believe in the supernatural per se. Uh, but I'm jealous, frankly. I'm yeah. jealous of the benefits of, uh, of, of how institutionalized religion brings people together. There's a lot of good there that unfortunately people who don't attend these, these type of ritualized uh, institutional settings we really miss out on to, to a large degree that that need that we have to understand others and to be understood only comes from regular interactions. And it doesn't mean we all have to, you know, uh, necessarily go to a, an institution where we don't believe in the in the ideology. I think it necessitates us facilitating new ways to have regular interactions with the important people in our lives, not only our friendships, but I think even our closest relationships. So my wife and I, we've been married for 18 years. And we met in college. We actually met in an in a undergraduate economics class. Uh, and we, <laughs> I remember we, we had this term that we learned in economics uh, that is, is called the residual, the residual beneficiary. The residual beneficiary is the person, the chump, that gets whatever's left over when a company is liquidated. So first, debt holders get their share, then equity holders, then residual beneficiaries, they get whatever's the scraps, the pennies on the dollar. And I remember a few years ago, my wife came to me and she said, you know, you have turned me into the residual beneficiary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because work comes first, 
you know, your, your buddies come first, uh, your writing comes first, all this stuff comes first. And I get the scraps of whatever's, whatever's left over. And she was absolutely right. She, she really had me there. And so we had to prioritize, you know, if this was according to my values, and again, I'm not preaching what your values should be, but if your values are like mine, where I believe that, you know, I, I want an equitable marriage, I want to be uh, a good partner for my wife, well, that means that we have to schedule the time for those things as well. Even some of the household admin stuff, I mean, this, this literally saved my marriage. We would constantly fight about the household responsibilities. And it turns out that we're not alone, that uh, studies find that in heterosexual, yeah, big <laughs> surprise, right? That in heterosexual households, even when there is dual income, uh, women still take on a disproportionate share of household admin duties. I see a lot of women's heads nodding, no men like this. Uh, and, so, and so I thought, okay, that can't be my family, right? We, we, we don't do that. But of course, I was absolutely wrong because we were having these fights about why I wasn't pulling my weight, right? My wife couldn't understand, well, you know, the trash is full, take it out, or the laundry's not done, do the laundry. And I would always say to her, you know, look, well, instead of being mad at me for not mind reading, right, how am I supposed to know what you want me to do? Just tell me what to do, right? Just tell me and I'll do it. And of course, what I didn't realize is that asking her to be the boss, the boss is a job. And I was asking her to do work by telling me what to do, right? I'm not a child, and so why do I need to be told what to do? And so what I was asking her to do was, was not only infantilizing for me, it was also placing a burden on her. Here was the solution. The magic solution was planning ahead, was sitting down together, took us 30 minutes. We had had hours of fights over this stuff. We sat down together and for 30 minutes, we wrote down all the stuff that needs to get done. We put those things in a calendar, it's not good enough just to write down to-dos. To do, there's a big myth out there that if you just put stuff on a to-do list, that stuff will get done. Okay, that's not true. <laughs> and let me just tell you right now. It's not true because that's the output, right? If you went to a baker and you said, hey, I need 100 loaves of bread. Can you make me 100 loaves of bread? The baker would say, sure, I'm gonna need flour, I'm gonna need yeast, I'm gonna need sugar, I'm gonna salt. Where's all the input to make the output? But when we only put stuff on to-do lists, that's just the output. The input is our time. So step one is making the to-do list. Step two is putting it on your calendar. So now we, we do what's called a weekly schedule sync. And with this weekly schedule sync, we sit down. It takes us 15 minutes every Sunday, Sunday evening. We sit down together. We look at each other's calendars for the week. We use this technique called time boxing where we plan out our days. Problem is gone. We do not have these fights anymore because I know exactly what I need to do and when I need to do it. And so she's not waiting for me to do one thing so she can do the next. It, literally saved my marriage. So this is not a tech book, it's a relationship book. That too. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it generally is actually because these problems, as you say, a lot of your relationship problems actually, sorry, let me rephrase that. You didn't say you had relationship problems. Um, some of these um, mild disagreements. <laughs> um, Challenges. <laughs> yeah, sort of went away once you'd actively prioritize what needed to get done. And I guess... That's a wider point, isn't it? We, we, we let these distractions um, suck up our entire day. And you're right that our loved ones get the leftovers. They get whatever we've got left. And in many ways, I guess what you're saying is, let's look at your week and start by figuring out what are your intentions? What do you value? Get those things locked in first and then fit everything else in 
around them, right? Right, right. As opposed to starting with you know the big hairy goal or the the big audacious plan, the the five year plan. Start with okay. Do you need time to commute? Do you need time for personal hygiene, taking a shower? Do you need time for quality sleep? This is simple stuff. And then with whatever's left over, after you've done the domain of time for you, time for your relationships, time for work. I mean, look, work takes up the the greatest chunk of most people's uh, day. And so by planning out, even in the workplace, you know, one simple solution, people talk about how distracted they are all day because of email and Slack channels and this and that, you know, planning out the time when you will check email. As opposed to using it when we're feeling stressed or anxious or uncertain, as opposed to letting these internal triggers guide us towards distraction, we can turn a distraction into traction by making time for it. So this is what happened with me with, with email. Email was my emotional coping device. When I was stressed about work, check email, right? When I was bored, check email. For you, it might be social media or who knows, you know, something else. And so what I did, I just planned time for it. So in my day, in my calendar, there's a specific time when I'm going to do that, when I'm going to check email, when I'm going to check social media. There's nothing wrong with the technology. What's wrong is that we use it without intent. We let these products use us as opposed to us using them. Well, that was the topic of your first book, wasn't it? How you um, create products that you know, keep people hooked in many ways. Um, so I guess in some ways it's, it's quite striking that you've gone from writing the book on how to create products that keep us hooked right. to writing the book on how we, I guess it's not just about technology, but how we actually um, you know, cope with all these tips and tools and, and strategies that these big tech companies are using to keep us hooked to their products. It's kind of, I mean, how did you get from, you know, in those five years, how did you get from one book to the next? Yeah. Um, so I... I think what's important to, to understand is that, uh, maybe this is best phrased by Paul Virilio, the philosopher, who said that when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Every new technology has a downside. Of course, there's a downside to a technological revolution of the scale of the internet. <laughs> there will be lots of problems. But of course, there's a lot of benefits and solutions. So my goal with writing Hooked, and this was five years ago, it's hard to remember, but five years ago, believe it or not, People were complaining about how technology, only geeks know how to use technology because it's so difficult to use tech, right? That before the iPhone uh, and the iPad, my, my mom never touched a computer before the iPad. That was her first computing device. She was, she was not, not on the internet in any shape or form before the iPad made it usable. And so the fact that these products have now, you know, now we're not complaining about products not being usable. We complain about them being too good, products that we overuse. But the idea, you know, I really do think that we can, we can have our cake and eat it too. That we can get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. And the goal for Hooked was not for the benefit of the social media companies or for the gaming companies. They've been using these techniques for years. That's where I learned these techniques. The idea was, can we use the same psychology that makes a game habit-forming, that makes it engaging, that makes it fun to make all sorts of other products more engaging? So Kahoot is the world's largest educational software. If you have school-age kids, chances are your kids are on Kahoot. And the goal of Kahoot is to get kids hooked to in-classroom learning. Uh, The goal of Fitbod 
is to get people hooked to exercising in the gym. My clients have included the New York Times, which wants to get people hooked to consuming the news. Apps like Calm or Headspace want to get people hooked to the daily meditation practice. So the book is not about how to addict people. That's not the title. The title is not how to build addictive products. The book is about how to build habit-forming products because addictions are always bad right? Addictions, by definition, are these persistent compulsive dependencies on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So we would never want to do that to a user, at least not intentionally. Sometimes addiction is an unfortunate byproduct, but we would never intentionally want to do that. However, habits are just defined as impulses to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. And of course, we have many good habits that help us live better lives. So Hooked was about how do we build those healthy habits into people's lives, but Indistractable looks at the other side, the products that we sometimes overuse. Really hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Just taking a very quick break to give a shout out to the sponsors. Athletic Greens have always been a big supporter of my show, And they are a company that I really like. They make one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've ever come across. And I myself take it regularly. Now, this podcast is all about empowering you to become the architects of your own health. And of course, today's topic of conversation is about focus and how to not let things that are not priorities distract you. Now, for me, taking athletic greens each morning as part of a daily routine helps me feel as if I've taken a positive step towards looking after my health. Now, when we think about health, one of the most important pillars is nutrition. And ideally, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. The reality, though, is that many of us struggle to consistently do that. And that is why I like high-quality whole food supplements like Athletic Greens. Many of you have reached out to me and have let me know that since taking Athletic Greens, you have experienced a lot of benefits. And the common themes that I always hear are better sleep, more energy, improved mood, and better concentration. It contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. And I really love their travel packs, which often accompany me when I'm on the roads or on the move. If you're looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. If people are listening to this and, you know, I saw a lot of nodding heads when you mentioned, you know, when you feel a bit uncertain or a bit stressed, you'll turn to your emails. Other people may turn to social media. I think we all know that feeling when, you know, we've sort of got nothing better to do. We're feeling a little bit angsty. We pull out our phones and, you know, we might get that reward we're seeking on Instagram, but if not, we'll flick onto something else. And you will keep searching on these endless feeds for something to distract us. So if someone is nodding their head to that, as many people were, um, what practical tips can you give them? How can they start the process of actually becoming indistractable? Sure. Yeah. So there's basically, so remember we had traction, distraction, we had external triggers, and we had internal triggers prompting us 
to these. It's, it's very difficult to do this in sign language and hand motions here, but you kind of get the idea. It's, there's a picture in the book. That's that a useful graphic. In the yes, book. there's a useful graphic. Really um, but, but the idea here is that we're basically working around these four points of, of, of this model, starting with mastering the internal triggers that if we don't master the internal triggers, we will always be distracted by something. So how do we do that? There's three big techniques. And the three big techniques are to first reimagine the trigger, reimagine the task, and reimagine our temperament. So reimagining the trigger is about responding to discomfort in a new way. Is, so there's a, a few techniques that I draw mostly upon from acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh, and one of, the, so one of the, the, the tools I provide is to start by noting the sensation. We use what's called a distraction tracker. And what we want to do is to identify the preceding emotion to that distraction. What were you feeling before you reached for your phone, before you ate that chocolate cake, before you procrastinated? What was the preceding sensation that prompted you to want to get distracted. Just writing that down has been shown to be incredibly empowering, just the act of writing it down. The next step is to explore that sensation with curiosity rather than contempt. Most people, as we talked about earlier, they're the blamers and the shamers, right? They, they get contemptuous with that feeling as opposed to just identifying it. And then what we wanna do is to surf the urge. Surfing, this ur surfing the urge is this idea, again, from acceptance and commitment therapy that recognizes that emotions, when we experience an emotion in the moment, it feels like it's going to last forever. When we're upset, we feel like we're always going to be upset. When we're happy, we feel like we're always going to be happy. But of course, that's never true. That emotions crest and subside like a wave. And we can ride that wave like a surfer on a surfboard. One technique I use almost every day is called the 10-minute rule. The 10-minute rule tells us that we can have anything we want. We can give in to that temptation in 10 minutes. And this technique has been shown to be much more effective than strict abstinence. Strict abstinence says, nope, I can't have it. And of course, this oftentimes backfires, particularly with something that you can't completely abstain from, right? It's, it's one thing to abstain from, from hard drugs and you can remove yourself from the environment, for example, but how do you abstain completely from technology? It's very difficult. How do you abstain completely from food? Well, we, we need it to survive, right? So instead of strict abstinence, which oftentimes backfires, and let, me, and let me tell you an example of how, I want everyone listening, whatever you do, do not think about a white bear. Don't do it. What are you all thinking about? Of course, you're all thinking about a white bear. It's impossible not to think about a white bear. And so what we find when it comes to these, this idea of strict abstinence, it's almost like pulling a rubber band. That if you pull a rubber band, you pull, 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 and then you release it, the rubber band doesn't go to where you started to pull it. No, it bounces further. And so this is what happens when we try and do, use strict abstinence. When we pull and we say, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, okay, fine, do it. Releasing that tension is registered in the brain as pleasurable. Because remember what we said earlier, that if all behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, if smoking that cigarette, if giving in to that chocolate cake, if checking uh, my newsfeed is something that I've been telling myself, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do, now it feels good just to relieve the tension of not telling myself to not do it anymore. And so instead of that strict abstinence approach, we can use this 10-minute rule where we tell ourselves that when we feel the, the temptation to give in to distraction, we can give into it in 10 minutes of surfing the urge. And we have a choice to make. We can either get back to the task at hand or spend those 10 minutes 
getting curious about that sensation. So sometimes I'll pick up my phone, I'll say, set a timer for 10 minutes, I'll put my phone down, and I'll just be with that sensation. And the goal is to reimagine that sensation in a way that serves us as opposed to hurts us. So what we find is that self-compassion is a very effective technique that when many people uh, berate themselves, as I used to do, I would tell myself how I'm, you know, this blaming mantra of, oh, I'm not good enough and I, maybe I'm not cut out for this and, oh, nobody's going to like this. And, you know, that shaming cycle or the, that, that, we, that we go through. Instead, we try and talk to ourselves the way we would talk to a good friend, right? We would ask ourselves, well, maybe I'm feeling discomfort. Maybe I'm feeling bored, anxious, stressed, whatever it be, and whatever it might be, because this is the process of getting better. Right? Getting better at something is effortful. It's part of the process. Stress is not, you know, when I came on stage here, I was getting kind of nervous. There was a little bit of stage fright. And I used to say to myself, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to do really poorly and everybody's going to know that, you know, maybe I'll mess up and I'll, I'll screw it up. But instead, now I reframe that internal trigger to tell myself, wait a minute, this stress is my body getting ready to perform. My heart is pumping not because I'm nervous and I'm going to screw up, but because my brain needs more oxygen in order to know these words I'm telling you right now. And so that process of reframing those internal triggers goes a long way to help us reimagine them so that we can gain great, greater, control, greater control over the response. Yeah, and reframing our stress, you, you also mentioned the story of Bruce Springsteen, don't you, in the book, and how he reframes the stress in terms of he, before he goes on stage, when he's feeling palpitations, when he's feeling pins and needles... He reframes to go, right, you know, I'm ready to give a legendary performance now. My body is priming me for that. So it's, it, I love that whole idea about reframing our stress. I think it's very, very powerful. Um, Nero, I want to talk about relationships, but particularly with our children. Um, there was a story you share um, in Indistractable that really reminded me of a story that I've spoken about before. And that story is when my daughter was four years old and I was alone with her. It was a Sunday. And, you know, I thought, you know, I'm quite conscious of my tech use in front of the kids. So I put my phone in a different room, in the dining room, and I was actually in the living room playing with her. But I can't remember what was going on. Something was going on in the world or on social media, something. So I kept disappearing every few minutes, you know, just have a quick look. Um, I'm sure no one in here has ever done anything like that before. Um, but it was quite interesting because I kept doing that. And I thought, hey, it's not in front of us. So I'm, I'm being present. And... She, she said to me at one point, she said, Daddy, you're not really here, are you? And you share a very similar story, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So in my occurrence, and this was really the seminal moment when I, when I realized I had to do something about this. We had this beautiful afternoon planned with my daughter, and we had this Daddy and Me book full of different activities that daddies and daughters could do to, to feel close to one another. And, you know, one of them was make a paper airplane and, you know, different activities. And one of the activities was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because when she was answering, I was told her, oh, hold on one second, honey, I got this one thing I just really need to do real quick. And she recognized that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was, and she left the room. And she started to play with some toy outside instead. And I'll add another story to this. I, I told my friend this story, and we have children of a similar age. And so he asked his daughter this question, and she said that the superpower she would want would be the power to talk to animals. And he said, oh, the power to talk to animals, why is that? And she said, so that when you and mommy are on your phones, I'll have someone to talk to. I know. <laughs> and so, you know, we have to set the example. You know, kids are hypocrisy detection devices. They are hardwired 
scanning for hypocrisy wherever they find it. And so we can't tell our kids, get off Fortnite, stop being on Facebook, stop, you know, do this and do that while we're checking email on our phones. And if there is one skill we have to teach our kids, it's the power to be indistractable, not by stopping the use of technology. That's ridiculous. We know the jobs of the future require our kids to be tech literate. We can't tell them to, to be scared of technology. We can't tell them it's going to hijack their brains. It's going to melt their, their synapses. That's ridiculous. We don't want them to be technophobes. We want them to be comfortable with technology. So we have to teach them how to be indistractable. And that starts, there's a lot, or there's a whole section in the book around how we raise indistractable kids. But the first step is really to become indistractable ourselves as adults. Yeah, I mean, that's a common theme in parenting. Wherever you look, I spoke to Philippa Perry recently, who's written a book about parenting, and it it comes down to the same thing. You want to sort your kids out, sort yourself out first. Uh, It's the kind of uncomfortable truth for many of us parents. Or we can do it together. I think a lot of parents, they feel like sharing vulnerability about their struggle somehow makes them weak in their kids' eyes. And and I don't think so. I think when it comes to this problem of, of distraction, I think it's a good idea to tell our kids, look, you know, these products are designed to be engaging, right? They are built to hack our attention. I- I'm telling you this as an industry insider that of course they are, we, and we want them to be. We want these products to be engaging. That's why we use them, right? We, we don't want to tell Netflix, Netflix, stop making your show so interesting. I want to watch them. Uh, Apple, please make your device less, uh, less user-friendly. We want these things to be engaging. Uh, that's, what th- that's what they're meant to do. But we can hack back. And our kids need to know that this isn't something that, that we should give up on or, or excise from our life. We should learn tactics to use these products in, in the right way. And we should tell them that we ourselves are struggling. And how can we work together to make sure that we can put these, them in their place? It seems that one of the most important skills that we can possibly teach the younger generation and teach our children is how to be indistractable. But that's not really what schools are teaching our kids today, is it? Yeah, I think so. There's, there's a really interesting um, body of research I had mentioned earlier, self-determination theory, um, that really opened my eyes to, I think, what's really going on with our kids these days. And so I think what we have to do is to ask ourselves, why do kids overuse technology? Then the root cause is that children are deficient in those three psychological nutrients. So let me walk through them real quick. Competency. This idea of competency, that all of us need the sense that we are getting better at something. You know that how good it feels when you're good at something, right? Whether it's uh, giving a talk or parallel parking, whatever it might be, that skill that you have that you're good at something, that feels good. And it turns out for psychological flourishing, according to Desi and Ryan, this 50-year-old research that is the most widely accepted theory of human motivation and flourishing, that we all need that feeling. But one thing that has occurred uh, synchronously with the rise of, of cell phones, uh, the, 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 the increasing use of cell phones, is the, the rise of teachers teaching towards tests. Uh, I'm not as familiar with what's going on in the UK. I suspect it's similar. But in the US, we have this very high emphasis on standardized testing that started rolling out around 2006, 2007. And we teach our kids towards the test. Teachers get paid based on the kids' test results. Many kids, starting in kindergarten, are subjected to standardized tests multiple times per year. And so they are told repeatedly, you're not competent. Not all kids, right? Not all kids struggle with too much technology use. But a subset of children is constantly told, you're not competent. And so back to that needs displacement hypothesis, if we don't get our needs met offline, where do we go? Well, the tech companies are very happy to give our kids products that make them feel competent. Minecraft makes you feel amazing. 
right? You can master it. You can build your own universe. It feels great. Now let's look at autonomy. Autonomy is this feeling that we have agency and control over our environment. It's freedom. We all crave it. We need the feeling of freedom. We hate being told what to do. But this is the most regulated generation in history. A study by Peter Gray found that children today have 10 times as many restrictions placed on them as the average adult, twice as many as an incarcerated felon. There are two places in society where you are allowed to tell people where to go, what to think, what to wear, who to be friends with, what to eat, and that's prison and school. That's it. And so is it any surprise when the school system puts kids through this regimented system and treats them like chattel and tells them what to do all day long, is it any surprise when they come home, they want freedom. They want to do what they want to do, which by the way, kids have been doing for a very long time. Now let's talk about the third point here about relatedness. Again, relatedness is this idea that you know every human being on the face of the earth, we want to be understood by others and have under, others understand us. We need this. This is part of, our, uh, of what helps us flourish psychologically. But kids today are deficient in this psychological nutrient of relatedness because they have no time for what's called free play. Since statistics were collected, kids today have less time for free play than ever before. Free play is when kids can interact with each other without the supervision of coaches and parents and teachers telling them what to do. It's kids being kids. And unfortunately today, kids have less time for free play than ever. The economically advantaged schedule the hell out of their kids. They send them to tutoring and swimming and ballet and Mandarin, and they have no time to just play anymore. Those that are of, uh, don't have the means, Many of them are so terrified by the media telling us that kids will get abducted and stranger danger, even though that's ridiculous, this is the safest time in history to be a child, that many of these parents are so scared they keep their kids indoors under lock and key. And what the heck are kids supposed to do, <laughs> right? They're looking for something, a way to interact with their friends. So where do they go if you don't get relatedness offline? Well, you use Twitter. You use Instagram, you use TikTok, you use Snapchat because they're desperate to have that sense of relatedness met. They need that interaction with their friends. Just like we used to do in our generation, talking on the phone until the wee hours of the night, we were interacting with our friends. We just wanted to relate to people and they're desperate for it. So one of the best things that you can do to raise an indistractable child is to plan time for free play. It's one of the most psychologically nurture, nourishing things you can do for them. And I think this is part of why we see such a fragile generation of, of kids growing up these days, that they haven't had that experience of, of free play. I mean, free play is where we learn our place in the world. It's one thing if a teacher or a parent tells you what to do. It's a whole nother story if one of your friends says, hey, if you act like a jerk to me, I'm not gonna be friends with you. We're not gonna play right? That's where you learn your place in the world and kids need more of it. So we have to schedule it. Just like we talk about making time for our own traction. One of the things we can do is make time for traction for our kids. You know, it, it involves in fi finding another parent who understands how important it is to give kids this psychological nourishment of free play. And we schedule time for play. Unfortunately, that's what's become. I mean, it used to be a kid, you know, in my generation, we just walked outside and we could find our friends because they'd all be playing. You don't see that anymore. You know, the neighborhoods don't sing with the sound of kids playing anymore. They don't do it. And so unfortunately, but this is, this is our salvation, we have to make time for that as well. Yeah. I mean, as you're sort of talking through that, I'm reflecting on many of my own uh, patterns as a parent. And, 
Yeah, literally just this week, my wife and I have decided to cut back on how many after-school activities our kids do because we thought this is getting a bit ridiculous now. And the, the tricky thing is you look around you and you see what everyone else is doing. And, you know, there is a, this feeling sometimes that you're missing out unless you do that. But we just thought, come on, we've just got to stand on our own two feet and go, look, this is getting ridiculous now. We don't feel that this is helpful. And, and I think your, your idea of, of, of actually scheduling free play and unstructured free play is probably one of the most influential yeah. things that we can do, right? And I think this skill set and teaching this skill set of becoming indistractable, this is the skill of the century. I mean, if you think if the world is distracting today, just wait a few years. The world of our, that our children will inhabit when they're adults is going to be only more distracting. This trend is not reversing folks, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so if we can raise a generation of children who are indistractable, that is the skill of the century. Um, something that is distracting me at the moment a little bit is that I was told there was going to be a clock on stage and I haven't seen one yet and I'm looking around for it to see what time it is. It is how much, sorry? 10 to 8. 10 to 8. Okay, so we have about 10 minutes or so. Okay, so um, let's sort of try and wrap up this a little bit. Um, one of the things that I find intensely irritating is when you're out with a group of friends um, and people are looking at their phones, okay, in terms of you're trying to connect. And we all, I'm sure I have also done it to somebody else, so I'm not sort of uh, casting blame here in, a, in any way. But it's, it is, it's in many ways, it's something that I think we've all got used to. And I think it's incredibly problematic. In the same way that I mentioned relationships before, if we're distracted whilst we're having the interactions with our partners, I think that's, that's incredibly problematic. And you do cover this in your book. And you, you mentioned a phrase that I've not heard before, and that is social contagion. I wonder if you could just expand on what sure. that is. Yeah. So um, uh, the, we've been here before. The good news is we've been here before and we've made it through. Okay, we're still making it through. And the, and the, the story I provide is, is this idea of, around smoking. Uh, that in the United States, it used to be that 60% of the adult population smoked. Today, it's around 14%. Uh, and one of the phenomenal things is that even without legislation, things have really changed in particular circumstances. Let me explain further. So when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in the 1980s. Those are some of my first memories were from the 1980s. And I remember in my household, uh, my parents didn't smoke. My dad had given it up years ago. My mom never smoked. And yet we had ashtrays all over our house. Why did we have ashtrays in our house? We had ashtrays because when someone came to your house in the 1980s, they just expected to light a cigarette in your living room. Can you imagine if someone came to your house and just lit up? If I, you know, I just assumed I could light a cigarette right now. That would be ridiculous, right? How awkward would that be? Why? Why did that change? We said, okay, well, legislation changed smoking laws. Yes, but no law ever mandated that you can't smoke in someone's living room. There's no law like that. Why did people change? Well, we adopted what's called social antibodies. Social antibodies is when a society changes their behavior because they see some kind of unhealthy behavior they want to weed out of the population. So what we did, we made it socially untenable to smoke in someone's living room. We made that rude. We made that something that, that is now something you would never dream of doing. And so I think we see something similar happening when it comes to our tech use. And I think it's happening with or without my book, but I hope to accelerate this process. We, you know, even today, I have to say, it is what a wonderful crowd. I mean, when I started teaching this, this subject matter, not with this book, but with my first book, pretty much half the room when I would give a public talk would be on their phones. Maybe I used to be a very boring speaker. I don't know. But, but today, look, nobody is on their devices. Maybe one or two people. I don't know. I, very, very few. Not that there's anything wrong with it, by the way, if you want to tweet. Don't, or, don't feel bad if you yeah, are. Don't feel bad. Honest. No guilt here. 
But we've learned, you know, I see this also with my students. I used to teach for many years at, at the Stanford Design School and the Business School. And my students, when I first started teaching, they'd be on their phone in the middle of the class. And then they started seeing the negative repercussions that, you know, you can't be fully present and listen to the professor uh, while you're on your device. And so today, almost none of my students do this. Uh, and so people are getting the message. There's this new word called fubbing. Maybe you've heard it. Fubbing uh, was a recently invented word that's the combination of phone snubbing. It's this practice when you're sitting with someone across the table and you're trying to have a discussion and they, they think it's a good time to take out their, their device, that's called fubbing. And so what do we do with fubbing? How do we inoculate our population? How do we inoculate our friends and spread these social antibodies? Here's how we do it. We ask one sincere question. The question is, I see you're on your phone. Is everything okay? <laughs> now, what do I do? What have I done when I ask that question? I'm not assuming that I know what's going on. If you say, get off your phone, I want to talk to you, right? Don't be rude. That's not going to work. You're going to lose a friend. One, you don't know what's actually happening on the other end of the line. There might be really some kind of emergency. But by sincerely asking that question of, hey, is everything okay? You give them an out to say, oh, you know what? I'm so sorry. There's just this emergency I really have to take care of right now, in which case they'll excuse themselves and take care of that problem. Or nine times out of 10, they'll get the hint and say, oh, I'm so sorry, and they'll put it away. Right? So we are learning this social antibody. We're spreading this social antibody. And, and I'm pretty optimistic. I see this happening already. Hopefully that process will accelerate by, by the, uh, this discussion. Yeah, I love that. I love the term fubbing. That's, uh, that's incredible. Have you actually used that strategy with any of your friends yet? All the time. Really? All the time, all the time. And, and frankly, you know, look, I told you at the very beginning when we started about when I defined the term indistractable, becoming indistractable does not mean we never get distracted. That's impossible. Becoming indistractable means we are the type of people who strive to do what we say we're going to do. And the idea is that we learn from when we got to get distracted. And there's this saying that uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So many of us, myself included, I mean, I wrote this book for me more than anyone, I would constantly get distracted day in and day out by the same thing. Yeah. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Now, when I get distracted, I know why. There are only three reasons, an external trigger, an internal trigger, or a planning problem. And I can do something about it in the future. So I'll be totally honest with you. Sometimes I get called out, my daughter in particular, right? So uh, if, I, if I'm taking my daughter to, uh, to a class or something, and I'll, I'll be you know, just taking her and going from one place to another, and I'll check something because my wife is texting me, and then I'll get caught in by one of these external triggers sometimes, and she'll say, hey, daddy, is everything okay? Yeah. Right? Good point. Let me put that away. Right? So, and and I, I want that. I think that's a healthy, that's a healthy yeah. thing for all, us all to help each other spread the social antibody. Yeah, for sure, Nia. Look, I've got to say another thank you again for actually writing the book, which I think is brilliant. But also, really, I love the fact that you've given a name now to this problem. So it's not this thing that we all sort of know we're suffering from. There's, there's, a, there's a name, you know, and we can think about how can we become indistractable. And often it's by naming a problem that actually we start to think about solutions. So thank you for that. Uh, as you know, Nia, this conversation is going to go out on my own podcast, Feel Better, Live More. And I always end it a particular way, and I wonder if we could try that here. So it's called Feel Better, Live More, because I genuinely have seen time and time again in my practice, seeing patients that when people feel better in themselves, they get more out of lives. And I guess the more indistractable we can become, the more we're going to get out of our lives. So I wonder if you could leave the listeners, but also the, the live audience here today, with some of your most practical tips that they can think about applying into their own life immediately once they've left. Yeah, so 
we only got through two of the four strategies. So maybe what I'll do is just kind of do a quick wrap up on these four strategies. And, and I think what's more important than the tactics is the strategy. Tactics are what you do. Strategy is why you do it. And so it's very important to first understand the strategy. So frankly, you can come up with your own techniques, right? I give lots and lots of tactics that you can, that you can use, but it's more important that you develop these for yourself and customize them to your life, right? Because we all have different values. We all have different lives. Uh, we're all on this journey together. And so these four steps is first to master these internal triggers. We talked about a little bit about how we can reimagine the triggers. We can also reimagine the task and our temperament. We don't have time to go into that now, but there's a lot more there. Then it's about making time for traction. It's about turning our values into time on our calendars and synchronizing our calendars with our loved ones, with our stakeholders, with our bosses, so that we can make sure that we're, we're, uh, we're synchronized around how we spend our time. What we didn't get to is, is around hacking back the external triggers. There's, this is a category that's very tactical. This is all about taking those, uh, those external triggers in our environment, the pings and dings or whatever else. It could be uh, our children, as we talked about earlier in the kibbutz. It could be superfluous meetings. It could be you know, uh, emails, uh, Slack channels, whatever it might be. And making sure that we ask ourselves this critical question of, is this trigger serving me or am I serving it? If the external trigger is leading us towards traction, it's great, let's keep it, right? If an external trigger on your phone is reminding you, hey, it's time to work out, it's time for that meeting, it's time to do whatever it is you plan to do in advance, keep it, it's wonderful. But if you're serving it, if it's leading you towards distraction, as that external trigger led me to check my phone when I wanted to be my daughter, now it's leading me towards distraction, it's not serving me, it needs to be removed. So it turns out two-thirds of people with a smartphone, two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. This is simple stuff, right? We can, we can all do this. That's kindergarten stuff. What's much more important uh, is, the, is the external triggers we don't always identify. So for example, in my research, I found that one of the most common sources of distraction in the workplace is other people, right? Especially if you work in an open floor plan office, we're kind of leaving ourselves open to someone tapping us on the shoulder and saying, hey, do you hear that little bit of gossip? Or can you believe what just happened? Or you know, whatever it might be, can I just talk to you for a quick sec? It's never a quick sec. So what we can do <laughs> is essentially there's, there's a, a, a screen sign in the back of the book. You pull it out, you fold it into thirds. It's this red uh, stop sign looking thing that you put on your computer monitor and it tells your colleagues, I'm indistractable, please come back later, right? <laughs> And so you're, you're sending this explicit message to your colleagues, you know, for the next hour or whatever, 45 minutes, I need some time to focus. I need some time to think. And so you're starting to set this culture of it's okay to disconnect for a little bit, even if disconnecting means not being uh, reachable all the time in the physical world, right? In an open floor plan office. And then finally, the last technique is about preventing distraction with pacts. And pacts are these pre-commitments that we can use. In this category, there are three things that we can do. We can make a price pact an effort pact, and an identity pact. These are promises we make to ourselves, to other people that help us stay on track, that prevent us from getting distracted. Uh, so an effort pact is something that we can do that puts a bit of work between us and something we don't want to do. So in my household, we talk, talked about relationships earlier. Uh, you know, my wife and I found that we were going to bed later and later every night. This was impacting our relationship. It was impacting our sex life because she would fondle her iPhone and I would caress my iPad as opposed to being with each other. <laughs> And so here's what we did. We went to the hardware store and we bought ourselves this $10 outlet timer. And this outlet timer turns anything you plug into it on and off at a certain type of day or night. And what do we plug into it? Our internet router. So every night at 10 p.m., our internet shuts off. 
Now, could I turn it back on? Of course I could. I could fiddle with it, go under my desk, unplug it, replug it. But that takes effort. That takes work. And that bit of effort makes me insert a bit of mindfulness to ask myself, wait, do I really need to go online right now? Or can I wait till later? And of course, 99% of the time, there's nothing all that urgent, right? In fact, now we've trained ourselves. We all know, okay, 10 o'clock, the internet shuts off. Do everything you need to do so we can get to bed. Uh, and then lastly, there's, there's a, a price pact, which is about making some kind of financial commitment. But one thing I want to leave you with is this an idea of an identity pact. And this was one of the, the, the more interesting bits of research I came across. This was research around the psychology of religion, and it turns out that when we have some kind of identity, some kind of moniker that we can embrace and call ourselves and tell other people about, we become much more likely to stick with our goals. And a good example of this, if you consider someone who's, who's devout, uh, they're not debating with themselves about their behavior every day the way we might if we don't have these type of, of beliefs, this type of moniker. So consider a devout Muslim. A devout Muslim would not say to themselves, hmm, I wonder if I should have that gin and tonic. No. A devout Muslim doesn't drink alcohol, period. A vegetarian doesn't say to themselves, ooh, I wonder if I should have that bacon today. No, they're vegetarian. They don't eat meat. It's who they are. I am a vegetarian. I I'm not, but that's what they would say. <laughs> and so that's why this book is called Indistractable. Indistractable should be the new moniker. It should be what we call ourselves because we know that when you have an identity, when you have some type of, 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 of noun that you can call yourself, you become much more likely to stick with your goals. So when people ask you, hey, how come you're not returning your emails every 30 seconds? How come you put this weird screen sign on your screen? Why do you do these strange things? That's who I am. And is it any more different than someone who wears unusual religious garb or who has a, 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 a diet that might not be what everyone else eats? No, we don't question those things. So we need this new moniker. And I'm hoping to start this movement. I mean, with or without the book, I want people to proclaim that, they are indistractable, that we are the kind of people who don't want our lives and our attention and our time controlled by others. We are the kind of people who do what we say we're going to do. We control our time and attention by becoming indistractable. Yeah, brilliant. Just brilliant. And Nia, I'm going to tell you now in front of a live audience, I am indistractable. Okay, that's my new Welcome. identity. Okay, I'll tell my wife when I get home tomorrow. Um, see how that goes down. Um, Look, thank you for sharing your wisdom this evening. Thank you for writing such a brilliant book. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Mr. Nir Eyal. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. So what did you think of that conversation? Has it caused you to reflect on your own life and some of your own behaviors? Do you agree with what Nir said or do you have a different perspective? As always, please do let both of us know on social media what you thought of our conversation. And Nir is someone who I've seen spend a lot of time responding to people's questions on Twitter and Instagram. So please do jump on and ask away if you have any further questions. As always, do think about one thing that you can take from this conversation and apply into your own life. As I mentioned in the intro today, for me, it's not about judgment. We all get distracted from time to time. This is about awareness. If we're gonna start changing our behaviors, we simply have to understand what is driving them in the first place. If you go to the show notes page for this week's episode, which is drchastity.com forward slash 120, you'll see links to all Nir's social media channels, his website, his books, 
including his fantastic new book, Indistractable, and a few media articles about his work. Anir spoke about how important scheduling the important things in our lives is so they actually do happen. And in many ways, this is an idea that lies behind my last book, Feel Better in Five. It contains a wide variety of five-minute habits that you can do each day to improve your physical, mental, and emotional health. It's founded on the principles and science of successful behavior change, and it really does work, even for the busiest of people. It's been out in the UK since January 2020, and it's probably had the most impacts out of any of my books so far. I'm really excited that it is officially being released in America and Canada on September the 1st. So if you live in those countries, or if you know someone who does, please do head over to Amazon.com where you can pre-order your very own copy now. It is available, as always, in paperback, ebook, and as an audiobook, which I am narrating. The American book has actually got a really exciting new yellow cover, which I really like, so do check it out. Of course, please do help me spread the word by sharing this conversation with your friends and family. And don't forget, you can watch this conversation in full on YouTube. So if you have friends and family who you feel would benefit from these conversations, but don't listen to audio podcasts, please do let them know about my YouTube channel. A big thank you to Vidata Chastity for producing this week's podcast and to Richard Hughes for audio engineering. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back in one week's time with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.